and welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host, Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight, this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. It's my absolute joy to introduce you to Lucy Piper today. Lucy's a fellow Brit living in Australia and she's one of my guests that I hope I stay in contact with forever. So Lucy has spent the past 15 years working as a communications professional, working primarily in advertising and brand creative production. She's played a key role in the uptake of purpose-led initiatives within a commercial organisation and utilised company culture and staff influence and networks to create momentum and internal support for B Corp certification. With this first-hand experience of what it takes to transform and influence corporate culture from within to become a climate and sustainability champion, Lucy is determined to scale this across broader industries and corporations via the Work for Climate platform. She's also one of those people I have on my podcast who is into endurance sports and running marathons for fun, and she's already completed a number of Ironman competitions. So hi, Lucy, and welcome to Women in Confidence. Nice to have you here. How are you? I'm great. And thanks so much for having me on the show, Vanessa. Excellent. So we've got a lot of ground to cover and I'm looking at my notes in front of me and there's um, lots to talk about today um, around confidence and to really start to understand and know you a little bit better. But I want to start by asking you this question. I ask this of all my guests. What do you think confidence is? What does it mean to you? I've been thinking about this a lot since we first got in touch with each other. And confidence to me is about a self-reliance and understanding your capabilities. But at the same time, I heard something very interesting yesterday, which really sparked something inside of me, which is the idea that it's not even an idea. It's a fact. The word confidence in itself stems from a Latin word. I can't remember what the word is, but meaning trust and the idea of trusting yourself. And I thought that that is exactly how I feel about being confident. It's it's a trusting in what I know I can do and what I know I'm capable of putting myself through. I think that's probably where I begin to break down what confidence means to me. And then on a scale of, say, one to 10, how confident do you think you are? Oh, great question. Hmm. I mean, sometimes I try to compensate for the fact that I'm probably overconfident a lot of the time, especially when it comes to work. And I don't want to be overconfident. I want to have a measured, humble level of confidence in what I'm capable of doing. Um, so I would answer that by saying out of 10, eight. Okay. And this is obviously not a coaching session, so (laughs) please don't think that I'm turning it into a live coaching session at all. Um, and I, I know, cause we've met what you are capable of, and we're going to start to explore some of that. 
So, but I'm going to I'm going to start actually with what you do now because I think this is really interesting in your role um, we're around working on climate change and working within businesses to bring about climate change. So, for the for the audience, can you tell us what your role is and what it involves? Sure. So, I'm the director of a program called Work for Climate, and we're a not for profit, WorkForClimate.org, and what we're trying to do is essentially build a movement of climate influences inside the corporate sector. I think talking about myself, I was someone who felt the urgency of climate change and I wanted to have a bigger impact. And I already worked inside a really progressive company that was doing a lot of great stuff for climate. And so the idea of work for climate is kind of trying to find people who, like me, are professionals, they work for an organisation, they want to do more, and we help coach those people through content and through online cohort-based coaching We help them to uh, build business cases for change inside their organisation that really accelerates climate goals, things like switching to 100% renewable energy or committing to ambitious 2030 emissions reduction plans, things like that. So I'm just going to talk about these. Um, Well, you talk about building a business case, making a compelling case, but also have influencers in companies to bring about the change from within. So that, I'm just thinking some big corporations, I work for a big company, to go into a company and say, this is what we want you to do, or this is as a company and an employee, it's what I want to happen. That takes quite a lot of balls to do that. Um, How do you help your ambassadors have that confidence? Well, that question is essentially the crux of what we're trying to figure out. The idea stemmed from the fact that People inside organisations who really care about something, care about an issue, maybe it's gender equality or maybe it's uh, something to do with inclusivity, Uh, it could be a range of things and climate being one of them. There's ways that individuals can make change inside companies and can kind of present an initiative and get traction with senior leadership. Like that's an established thing that happens inside organizations, right? And so we wanted to try to find the people that know how to drive change inside an organization and they've got the passion and the energy for doing this work. And we want to give them the technical skills to be able to talk about corporate climate action in a way that helps them feel confident enough to raise the issue at work. And I think the challenge with climate is that a lot of us feel like we can't enter into the conversation. It's it's stepping out of our lane, if you like. And in order to solve the climate crisis, we're going to need everyone to step outside of their lane. And this isn't just up to scientists and technologists to solve this problem. It's not just up to governments. This is going to be something that we all, for, for the next couple of generations to come, will become more and more focused on this. So we wanted to create the tools to help people understand that you don't need to be a climate scientist or a climate policymaker to engage in conversations and to help lead significant initiatives. Um, a lot of stuff that corporations can do to have an impact on climate are to do with 
making changes, reducing emissions, and it comes down to what individual people are doing in their jobs and in their departments. It's like any kind of transformation that happens inside a corporation. The analogy that I I lean on quite a lot when I'm talking about this is in the early 2000s into like 2010, 2015 even, how companies needed to go on a digital transformation, how they had to integrate systems and get different things, different tools talking to each other. So the whole digital transformation is something that the global corporate sector went through successfully. It was hard. It was changed. And now we're going to have to do the same thing with climate. So we want to try and upskill the entire kind of, um, we want to upskill people who are hungry to lead this change right now. So just using your analogy of the the digital transformation, I imagine many many businesses were or could see the economic value of that. What's the economic value of, of companies getting on board with climate? Well, the economic value is that ultimately, whether it's now or whether it's 30 years from now, every business needs to move to a zero emissions economic model. That is the trajectory that we are on. As governments around the world begin to legislate this kind of thing, it's going to be more and more difficult for companies to emit carbon recklessly. So even though for a lot of industries in the short term, it will look like it costs a lot to reduce your emissions, or maybe the short-term cost in the next two to three years to switch to 100% renewable energy is going to be higher than if you were to stay on uh, fossil fuels for your energy, for example. If you actually look at the numbers over a seven to 12-year period, the cost-benefit actually flips and you're going to be saving money. You're going to be making money on having renewable energy. So companies should be looking at that longer-term balance sheet because they're going to have to move. And it's 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 a catch-22 because the way that companies need to be set up, legally, directors have a fiduciary duty to deliver the highest amount of profit year on year that they can. But that's a short-term view, isn't it? So I think that Things will need to change in the next five to 10 years. The way that businesses are planning, uh, planning for growth will need to evolve so that we can get to this renewable energy economy. Yeah. And I think I was thinking about this before we came on and recorded that climate change, we need to, and the concept and the conversations around climate change, we need to move from just being, oh, it's trendy at the moment, to being, this is just the sort of conversation that we have. But I was going to ask you, in order to sort of step into those conversations and really talk about the bottom line in businesses, you're going to have to leverage your influence because, you know, ultimately, as a director of the, of the company, you're the face, you're the, the spokesperson. Where does that come from? How do you leverage that influence and what can we learn from you? Well, that's a great question. I think the way that I'm going to get into this, the way that I'm going to step into thinking about how to even answer that question is that for me, leveraging influence is just about human-to-human conversations. So whether or not you're talking to a CEO or someone in 
a position of high authority or whether you're talking to a peer or whether you're talking to um, a family member, everything about influence, influencing this conversation about climate, getting it on people's radar, getting people to care about it. It's all just conversations with other human beings. And the only thing that I have in this space, I'm not an expert, like I am not a climate expert, and I come to this work with very little experience in climate. The only thing that I have is passion. I have passion for it. And I have the energy to have these conversations and to lean into something that's a really difficult, a difficult space to, to be in. It's, it's hard, heavy work talking about climate. It's become really politicised as well. And, and sometimes talking about climate can feel like stepping out and just putting a target on your back, especially when you need to say things publicly, put, put ideas and thoughts out into the public forum. But... I have the passion to keep turning up day after day. I think about my child, like he's the reason that I'm doing this work and he is the, since becoming a parent, that's what really galvanised this inside me, thinking, okay, I've really got to start doing something now so that when my son is older and he turns around and he's like, hey, mom." What were you doing in that critical decade, that last window of opportunity where we could turn the ship around? What were you doing? And I I want to be able to say to him, Tobes, I did everything that I could, having nothing, having no skills in this space, I did everything that I could to influence the conversation, to influence people to take action and to care. And when you're showing up to um, these corporations, big or small, actually, and you're trying to bring about change and transformation, or you're having to do some public speaking, do you ever get nervous? Mm, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, I, I do really get nervous. One tactic, one tip that you've probably heard many times from the people you've interviewed on this podcast, or perhaps uh, you've used it yourself, is I try to reframe nerves as excitement. And when I'm nervous, just um, remind myself why I'm doing this thing. What is it about it? Why am I passionate about it? What is the outcome that this conversation or this presentation or this pitch is going to have? And then use that as, okay, I'm excited that's what the nerves are, their excitement. But yes, I definitely do get nervous, Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. That is good to hear. Because I think most people do, but perhaps lie about it or try and not let it be exposed. And actually, I think the more we talk about that, actually, it's a really natural human reaction to be nervous. And that's mm. okay. But it's about having, and thank you for sharing your your hint, it's about having the techniques to, to flip that. And so you come across as confident and in control. So thank you for that. Now, you also said, you know, you, you don't have a, a strong background in climate or the environment. What, what is your background? How did you come to be a director in the company? So my background, I spent the past 10 years working at a travel company called Intrepid, and I was their global head of creative. So I had the best job in the world. And it was at a company that I loved, amazing culture, doing great work. And I got to travel the world, 
making uh, videos and uh, shooting photography and writing about it and managing a variety of teams that kind of produced all the multimedia brand content and storytelling for Intrepid. So I had a really unique experience of being able to travel the world like a ridiculous amount. I had a carbon footprint that was shameful. I'll be honest with you, like it was pretty bad. And we, Intrepid, they're a B Corp certified company. And whilst we were going through, whilst we were going through the process of B Corp certification, um, they had to do an assessment of every employee's carbon footprint. And I remember this one year, maybe it was 2016, I had the third highest carbon footprint in the entire organization of about two and a half thousand employees second to only, I think, the chairman and our head of the destination management companies. I was traveling so much. I was offsetting all my flights, but it, it was something that was kind of playing on my mind. Oh, I'm, I'm emitting a lot of carbon, but at the same time, I was getting to have all these really extraordinary um, experiences of meeting people and working with people around the world. I got to do some really exciting adventure projects where I would uh, go overseas and do some filming and it kind of combined with things like running and cycling. So yeah, for 10 years, I, I worked in adventure travel. So we're going to talk about that now because when we spoke, you gave me quite a few examples of, of just these incredible adventures that you had. And I call them adventures deliberately because they're, they're work, but actually you get a, you know, you've got a kick out of it. So let's talk about your adventurous side, uh, which you combined with your job. One of them, I know you did um, a marathon, which is just like off the scale, but in on the Inca Trail. So how on earth did that happen? This is my all-time favourite like career highlight and personal achievement highlight as well. I got a, a phone call from our PR manager in North America at the time. And he said, I'd been training for, I was training for an Ironman at the time. And I was, I was about 10 weeks into training. So I was feeling fit and I, I like to do a lot of long distance running. So I generally, I was keeping a good level of fitness and, and the PR manager, Mikey called and he said, Hey Lucy, what are you doing in the first or second week of October? Do you have any shoots on is your calendar free? And I said, oh no, I don't have, I don't have anything planned. Why? And this was about six weeks away. It wasn't, it wasn't far off in the horizon. He said, well, I've got this project. I really need someone to go to Peru and to film the Inca Trail for me. And I was like, amazing. That'd be so good. And the Inca Trail is about the distance of a marathon. But usually on a trip, I think it takes between three and five days, depending on, on who you're traveling with or, or who's guiding you. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. And he said, yeah, the only thing is um, you need to run it. And I thought, oh, oh, that really kind of uh, piqued my interest because of the long distance training that I was doing. So I said, yeah, great. And then he said, and the other thing is you will be filming an ultra distance runner. And I was like, that is so cool. Absolute, yeah, love it. And then he said, yeah. And But the final thing is the ultra distance runner is called Dan Berlin and he's blind. 
and he's a t- like he's going to attempt to be the first ever blind athlete to run the Inca Trail in a day. And I was like, whoa, this is huge. But I said yes, which is something that I try to do, like say yes and then figure it out afterwards. And so six weeks later, I was in Peru. There was crazy logistics to make it happen. Um, But I got there and got to experience quite an extraordinary team event. So there was Dan and his three guides and myself filming and our intrepid guide as well. And we ran the Inca Trail in a day. It was mad. And I made a film about it. But then you had to edit it um, within something like 24 hours. Is that right? Yeah, that was the thing. Because obviously it was like a a PR-led project. The whole idea was that Dan was the first athlete who's blind to be completing this thing. So it was kind of, it had an element of newsworthiness to it. So I needed to do the edit overnight. So I finished this. I think it took us about 13 hours, this 13-hour epic run, and I had to go back to my hotel room and edit the film and then publish it overnight. So, um, yeah, that was over overcommitting on my part for sure. So this podcast seems to attract long-distance runners, and maybe that's um, a kick up the bum that I probably need to do something. But um, some the people I interview who do long-distance runners or endurance sports talk about it in a spiritual there's a spiritual sort of sense to it. So after you've done your your 13 hours at altitude, what did you what did you notice about yourself? Was there anything that sort of came up during that run? I'll agree with you. It's a it is a very spiritual experience, and a lot came up during that run, but predominantly because I was accompanying this extraordinary human being who like going into that going into that adventure i thought i had my own limits and i i thought wow yeah i'm i'm going to do this cool physical endurance event and then you do it with someone like dan and i was just in awe by him it so it it's quite an emotional memory to to bring up uh because i remember um when we got to machu picchu which they kept open for us. So normally it closes and they take all the bus loads of tourists away. They kept it open for us because we'd, we'd made it through the Sun Gate by the, the cutoff time. They kept it open for us. And when we got there, the sun was just setting behind the mountains, but the sky was still, there was still light in the sky. So you could see it, it was completely deserted. The most incredible view that you could possibly imagine and there'd been bushfires throughout the day like further away but it meant that the eucalyptus is kind of burnt the sky was like a purpley color and we stood there looking at the most stunning sight you've ever seen and everyone was silent because Dan's standing there and there was this heavy feeling of he can't see this and we've just done this event and when you're doing you're doing the run and it's epic and the view of the whole run is amazing but you're very much there for Dan and to be guiding him and keeping him safe and then you get to the destination which under normal circumstances would be the pinnacle but this moment was really different and and it was silent and Dan broke the silence 
and just said, I can, I can see it. I can see it. He said, I can hear it in the wind, in the leaves, and I can feel it in the dirt on the ground and I can smell it in the air. He said, I can see it. And it was like he read the fact that none of us wanted to say, oh, how amazing is this? So, yeah, in terms of it being spiritual, like that particular endurance event was really remarkable. But in when I do other kind of long-distance challenges and runs um yeah there's there's certainly an an outer body experience that takes place and what does it tell you about yourself though do you learn anything and you think okay I've just cracked out an iron man like you do do you reflect on these things I think that as opposed to reflecting on them for me it's more in the goal setting itself I um, and maybe lots of other people would agree with me, but I think I'm in pursuit of something that takes me out of the day-to-day kind of, I'm in pursuit of a test, like testing myself, testing what my limits are and setting a goal that seems impossible and then doing the work for the 12 months or whatever it is in the lead up to that goal that's the thing that um, I reflect on. It's like, okay, what could I do that's going to make me experience hardship? What can I do that's going to drive me to have to sacrifice things? And I think that in our day-to-day lives, I'm so blessed and so privileged in the way that I live that maybe it's just a, a way to make sure that I I have a way to push myself. I have a way to put myself through hard things. And so I try and pursue those kind of goals. You talk about setting goals and then working towards that, whether that's a, a year or six weeks. Um, is that something that you you just do or have you learned to do that? Is that a learned skill? It's definitely a learned skill and it's, something that you and I talked about previously, like when we've met before is the idea of intentionality and doing things by design almost. There's a difference for me in my life. Like I could go out and go for a run at lunchtime every day to keep myself fit. But then there's an intentionality of putting something in my calendar for a year's time or whenever, six months time. And having that looming goal and knowing that I need to actually adjust the work that I'm doing to make sure that I achieve that goal, there's a transformation that takes place because you've put that goal there. And once the goal's there, everything kind of cascades down from that. And it happens, sport is sport is the easy place to kind of apply that framework but then I try and use the learnings from sport and then put that into my work and put that into other areas of life like set a goal that's really going to push you out of your comfort zone and then uh, work backwards from that the goal kind of gives you the framework but yes it's it's a learned behavior and I do it with intention and I feel I feel rudderless if I don't do that and do you share your goals? Do you make them visual? How do you how do you get them out there into the world? I think that 
I do, I'm I talk to the people that are closest in my life about my goals. So my family and perhaps like my close friends and colleagues, so that it's shared, so that I have accountability to it, but I don't necessarily amplify them further than that. I did years ago when I did an Ironman, I decided to write a blog about my training. And I'm not sure if you've spoken to a lot of other athletes who have trained for the same goal, but we are the most annoying bunch of people on the planet because it's like, how do you know if someone's training for an Ironman or not? Because they tell you and it's the only <laughs> thing they talk about. So that was, I was 100% that guy and I uh, wrote, I had a blog and I blogged about my experiences and my training. But then the, doing that and sharing that goal and sharing my experiences led to, I used to, I, an editor found me online and I started writing a monthly column for a triathlon magazine. And I, I wrote for a women's triathlon website called Wits Up for a long time as well. So it did lead to really great experiences. Um, but since then, I've tried to keep my goals a little bit more just for me, like mm. less about, hey, everyone, check out what I'm doing. Although right now I'm on a podcast. Talking <laughs> yeah. Are you training for anything at the moment? Have you got a goal in mind? I am training for the Melbourne Marathon, which is next weekend. Ooh, okay. So, so really timely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, good luck with that. I won't be doing it with you. <laughs> um, I won't even be watching, actually, because running is really not my thing at all. Um, last time you spoke, and I want to quote this back at you because I think it's a really powerful statement. You said, you are not passive in your journey. You're very deliberate. And you talked about intentional. Just explain that to me. What do you mean by you're not passive in your journey? I mean that ideas around confidence and leadership and the pursuit of achievement or or goals, things like that, I have aimed to be intentional in, in what I'm doing and in learning about leadership. I think that and perhaps you agree or perhaps you disagree. You have a really you have a really different experience to me. So uh, I think that you've probably been around leadership a lot more and had that kind of ingrained learning about leadership. But for me, I found that being a female in business, there is it's not assumed that you're a leader or that you're going to be a leader. Whereas I think that. For men, perhaps it's more kind of assumed or they're more naturally groomed for leadership roles inside corporations. But I didn't think that that was the case for for women, particularly early on in my career. And so I just decided I'm going to learn what leadership is and I'm going to learn about leadership. And I, like one of my heroes is Ernest Shackleton and his story of leadership, despite the fact that um, the endurance expedition was an absolute failure, the lessons of leadership that came out from that Antarctic expedition is kind of like the blueprint of leadership. And I became inspired by his story when I was about 18, 19, and have 
ever since. Like I started learning about Shackleton's leadership and then that got me thinking about other styles of leadership and other lessons of leadership. So it's been like a constant learning process. And that seems to be the default of um, like self-development books and, and podcasts and things that I like to listen to are around confidence and leadership and, and how do you nurture the things inside of you that will help you get better at, at being a leader, that kind of thing. So just taking Shackleton then as um, one of the the people that you respect as a leader, what is it about his style of leadership that you think is important to how you operate as a leader? My read, my interpretation of it is around leading from the back. I think that's what I take away from it, the idea of nurturing people before anything else. Like the mission only happens if the people are safe and supported and have the confidence in themselves to be able to execute. So, yeah, I think it stems from, from the people piece. That's, that's what I found most inspiring and what resonates most with me and how I aspire to lead and to help others to lead. See, because leading from the back is not traditionally seen as a form of leadership. And perhaps that is the space that women can really contribute. In particular, as we're going through this change within business anyway, is maybe there's so much more space for leading from behind and being much more people focused. I don't know what's your thought on that. Absolutely. 100%. I think the leadership of the past is not what we need to get us where we need to get to. The transformation that needs to happen on this planet, we're not going to get there using those old styles of leadership. And we need more collaboration, more people-led leadership. And you talked about, you know, leadership, um, sort of gurus perhaps is the word, some podcasts, other than this one, obviously, um, (laughs) self-help books. Can you give the listener something something you've read or something you've heard or a podcast you've listened to that has really made an impact on you? Oh, yes. The podcast that I go back to again and again and again right now, I can't remember if I spoke to you when we chatted before about this, is Inside Influence by Julie Masters. She's amazing. Anything that she tells me to do on her podcast, I go away and do it. I mean, obviously, she's not just talking to me, but (laughs) I like to, uh, and I'm sure your listeners feel the same about you, Vanessa, that you're just talking to them. Um, But yeah, so Julie Masters interviews a lot of people and talks about influence and tries to distill, like, what is it about influence, similar to, to your work with confidence. So I listen to a lot of Inside Influence. I also listen to Shane Parrish, whose podcast is called The Knowledge Project, and his he tries to distill learning and, and knowledge so that his listeners can, can really kind of level up in, in multiple areas of knowledge and in business and, and leadership. And his stuff is very 
stoic, like it's based in that traditional stoicism ideas, um, which also leads me to think about a book I'm rereading at the moment, which is by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way. And that resonates a lot with me because I think of going back to endurance, endurance in both business and in sport, the idea that you lean into the hard things and yeah, the obstacle is the way. I I love that as a concept. Is there a woman that you think personifies confidence? It doesn't have to be anybody well known, just anybody, and then just explain why. Greta Thunberg is uh, the woman who springs to mind immediately. The woman, the girl, she's she's so young, and she quite literally has the world on her shoulders, but the confidence that she carries into her speeches, the certainty when she's talking, the certainty that we have to act, we have to do everything that we can. And and the way that she seems to channel everything that I'm feeling, everything that we are all feeling and she does it for us. She's doing it for all of us. And the confidence, whether she feels confident on the inside or not, or, or whether she um, feels like she has no choice but to continue to do this work, I think she's extraordinary. And she's the reason that I am here doing this work as well. Although I said that it was becoming a parent that kind of galvanized it for me. The actual moment when I made a decision that, okay, I'm going to change, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to work solely on climate. I was watching her speech to the UN in 2019. I think it was July, 2019. She made a speech and I was on the tram going back to work. I hadn't long been been back after after parental leave and I was watching her speech on my iPhone on a packed tram and I began to weep. Like I was on my own just weeping and I love the thing about public transport is that no no one looked over or said, hey, are you okay? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was, it was Greta Thunberg. Mm. She has an extraordinary gift to be able to influence mm. you gave me goosebumps actually when you mentioned her and talked about her I actually had a, se- a physical sensation that was really interesting so what's the one piece of advice you can offer to people listening that they can just perhaps take away uh, perhaps action or it could just perhaps sit what's your piece of advice to them about being confident and and actually radiating that confidence to the world My one piece of advice, (laughs) well, I used to get a piece of advice all the time from my mum, which was fake it till you make it, Uh, but I think that that only gets you maybe 10% of the way. So my piece of advice is almost like to sharpen the saw, to to do the the basics in whatever area it is it is that you're trying to have confidence in, whether it's in your career, whether it's um, 
in in sport, like whatever it is, confidence comes from going back to that idea of trust. Like it's trusting in yourself that you will be able to deliver at a certain level. So to deliver at a certain level, you need to just kind of practice, 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 have the right habits in place. Um, So yeah, like sharpen the saw, go back to the, like do the same thing again and again and again, and that's going to help you feel more confident um, in, in that area. Or fake it till you make it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mum. <laughs> so, uh, Lucy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think you've added so much value and given um, so much. So thank, thank you for being so generous with your time, but also just your stories and your um, advice as well to the listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you, Vanessa. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.